Extra Daily Planet Extra. Is this the real life? Let me have you, Donald, please. Let me have you, brother. Is this just fantasy? Come on! Caught in a landslide. No escape from reality. Ah! I want to assemble a task force of the most dangerous people on the planet. They're bad guys. Worst of the worst. Too late. Open the gate! My time has come. Since you must have my spine. Was this a uh, cheerleading trial? Hi, boys. Goodbye, everybody. Deadshot. Guy shoots people. He's a crocodile. And he eats people. Burns people. You're possessed by a witch. And she's just crazy. What was that? I should kill everyone and escape? Sorry. The voices. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not what they really said. This is the deal. You're going somewhere very bad. Whoa. Do something that'll get you killed. Let's go save the world. I can't wait to show you my toys. Let's do something fun. The Man of Green. Seriously, what the hell's wrong with you people? We're bad guys. It's what we do. Nothing really matters to me. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode six of Man of Screen Extra. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, I am going to take a look at the most recent installment in the DC Extended Universe movie franchise. Suicide Squad, which was directed by David Ayer and released into theaters on August 5th, 2016. Not only was it directed by David Ayer, it was also written by David Ayer. It starred Will Smith as Deadshot, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, Viola Davis as Amanda Waller, Jared Leto as The Joker, Jai Courtney as Boomerang, Jay Hernandez as El Diablo, Adewale Akinoi Agbaje, I hope the hell I'm saying that correctly, as Killer Croc. Kara DeLevine as June Moon and the Enchantress. Joel Kinnaman as Rick Flagg. And that kind of rounds out the main cast of the film. You know, and as we kind of move toward the release date, this film kind of went the same route that Batman v Superman did. And the early reviews that we had heard from people who had seen the film early were pretty much positive, but... The onslaught began when the critical reviews came in on the Tuesday prior to release. Uh, critics did not like the film. Rotten Tomatoes, if you believe in that particular website, which is basically an aggregator of good and bad reviews, said the film got 27% good reviews out of what it aggregates. I personally don't put a ton of stock in that because, one, it just seems the way my taste of movies seems to go away from what the critics have liked. 
I mean, Suicide Squad gathered a uh, 27% on the so-called tomato meter, which to me doesn't mean a whole lot. You know, I prefer to look at how audiences responded to the film, and that's really who the films are made for. These films really aren't made for movie critics. And from what I'm seeing as of this recording on Sunday night, August 14th, 70% of the people who have clicked on Rotten Tomatoes have liked it, as opposed to 30% who have not. And that's really a barometer of what the general audience thinks over what, you know, a couple of critics who... I'm not going to say they don't know their movies. I'm just going to say they're looking at these movies in a different way than you and I are. They're looking at technical aspects, thing, you know, whether they think the story flows, whether it does. I just care about whether or not I had a good time at the movies. And I can say that for two hours, I enjoyed my time in the theater. I was there with, with Stacy and her son, Corey. We all had a good time. And you know what? As a parent and as a man with a family, I'm really just looking to have an entertaining experience at the movie theater. I will go on the record and say this film was more fun than Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice was. But, you know, this film, in a way, kind of brought the crazy the way that film didn't. And, you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb here, and in a movie, crazy is fun. So I enjoyed my time at, at the film. I definitely do not believe this movie deserved all of the hate that it got. It was the Suicide Squad. It had everything there that I wanted to see from the Suicide Squad. It had Deadshot, the principled assassin who won't kill women or children, but will only kill his target if he gets paid on time. You know, he cares very much about his daughter, and these are things that I will get into later. Viola Davis was Amanda Waller in spades. It was no imitation of New 52 Amanda Waller that we've been seeing in the comics and on Arrow. You know, that was Amanda Waller. Harley Quinn was Harley Quinn from the, from the animated series, as far as I'm concerned. You are welcome to disagree, but that was Harley Quinn. That was the Joker. I don't care what she's wearing. Somehow, I don't believe that anybody would buy Harley Quinn in the slightest if she were walking around this movie in a court jester costume. And we got enough lip service to the court jester costume that I think this character was well served in this film. She had me the first time I heard her say, Mr. J. What are you going to do? Are you going to kill me, Mr. J? And the way she spoke in the film, she didn't have the high-pitched squeal that Eileen Sorkin brought to the character in the early incarnations of the animated series, but... In the New 52, they established that her hometown was Canarsie, Brooklyn, which is the same neighborhood in Brooklyn that I grew up in, and I've always had a little bit of an attachment to Harleen Quinzel in the New 52 because we hail from the same neighborhood. And despite her Australian roots, Margot Robbie pulled off that accent. At least I thought she did. Anyway, I really have no complaints about the characters. You know, Rick Flagg was... He was Rick Flagg. He was uh, the kind of the straight man thrown into a world of crazy, and he looked in over his head. He, the only one who, you know, like everybody else, Waller had something on him, and that's what she does. El Diablo was what I expected him to be. He was the person who doesn't want to engage his powers because he had regrets about something that happened in the past. Killer Croc was Killer Croc, a man of very few words, but when he did speak, it was pretty humorous. And then there was the Joker. Look, I know the hubbub when the movie came out about how the Joker, played by Jared Leto, only had about 10 or so minutes in the film. But you know what? He only needed to be on the screen for that long. Maybe the, the movie got the reviews it got because everybody expected Jared Leto to be the main villain of the film, and he wasn't. He was there throughout the film. I mean, he wasn't always on the screen, but he was present. The Joker spent the entire movie chasing Harley Quinn. And that plotline was present throughout the movie, even if the Joker was not on the screen. So even when the Joker wasn't there, he was there, so... We only got 10 minutes of 
the Joker on screen. So what? This was not a Joker movie. This was not a Batman movie. This was a Suicide Squad movie. And in that, I believe it succeeded. It told me the story of the Suicide Squad. I saw nanobombs in people's heads. I saw one head explode. I saw the backstories of pretty much all the Suicide Squad characters that I wanted to see backstories of. I really could care less about Slipknot. And you know, even though I did enjoy this film, I am not going to sit here and say that I thought it was a masterpiece of modern cinema. It certainly was not, but it was entertaining, and it did have its weaknesses. I'm not going to speak much about editing and things like that, because you know what? That's not my expertise. My expertise is DC Comics elements, what I know of the Suicide Squad, and whether or not I enjoyed the film, and that's really what I'm going to talk about. I might rant a little bit about some of the criticisms I thought may or may not have been unfairly leveled at the film, but there is one criticism out there about the film that I kind of agree with, and that it had a weak villain. But the villain was kind of the MacGuffin. You got a movie full of villains, somebody had to be the object they were chasing, and that was the Enchantress, who possesses the body of June Moon, and they were trying to create a weapon for whatever they were trying to create a weapon for, to give the squad something to fight. So there had to be a villain in the film, something they were chasing. It was the Enchantress. When I had first heard the Joker was going to be in the film, I figured they'd be chasing the Joker because the Joker is not the kind of character that would play well with a group like the Suicide Squad. But I did like the fact that the Joker was kind of outside the plot, at least the main plot of the story. He was kind of a B-plot chasing his own ends. So I like the Joker functioning in that kind of wild card type of way, and it'll possibly set up nicely for a future film if he shows up again. I will say this, though. After about... A week or so of this film being out, I'm kind of tired of the complaining I'm hearing from Jared Leto about how they filmed enough stuff for a Joker movie or this, that, and the other thing. There is never going to be a Joker movie. If the Joker ever has a large role in a movie, it's going to be in a Batman film, not in a Suicide Squad movie. And I'll be honest, probably my favorite Joker appearance in a story is, this, is a story in which the Joker only appeared on the last page. Infinite Crisis in, it was either 2006 or 2007, the Joker appeared on one page at the end, dispatching the villain, because he didn't let the Joker play. The Joker just does things, and he did not fit into the overall plot of the film, but he did fit as a nice B-plot, and just because he's the Joker doesn't mean he needs to be the A. So, he wasn't the A this time, maybe he'll be the A some other time. Until then, we'll just have to wait and see what happens, because there are going to be solo Batman films coming out, down the line. With that being said, I am going to take a quick break, I'm going to play a promo, then I'm going to come back and talk about the characters, and then I'm going to give a little bit of a plot synopsis of Suicide Squad. Hang around, folks. Are you willing to follow me on a journey and risk getting lost in a swirling maze of past ages, protected only by our red indestructible capes as we break through the final unexplored realm of the time barrier to explore the fantastic Silver Age adventures of the world's greatest hero, Superman? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast as together we'll follow the Man of Steel, his cousin Supergirl, and his closest friends, Perry White, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Lana Lang, Batman and Robin, and others in Superman's never-ending quest to defend truth and justice in the pages of Action Comics, 
Superman, World's Finest Comics, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. Go to the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, available on iTunes and most other podcast aggregators. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Medium, Flipboard, and Stitcher. And after you listen, feel free to send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And unless you request otherwise, I look forward to reading your comments on future episodes. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape, standard safety equipment for traveling through the time barrier. All right, welcome back, folks. Before we head into the uh, character discussion for Suicide Squad, I want to remind every one of you that this episode will contain spoilers. I will be spoiling plot details. So if you have not yet seen the movie, I kind of wonder why you're listening to this episode. And if you're planning to see the movie and have not yet, put the podcast on pause and come back after you've seen the movie. So with that being said... Don't say I did not warn you. And I'm going to move right along into some character discussion regarding Suicide Squad. We'll start with top build Will Smith, who played the role of Floyd Lawton slash Deadshot. You know, Will Smith was a controversial choice. I don't think anybody expected a Warner Brothers to go with a big star to play the role of Deadshot. And I think to many, this seemed to be a role that was below Will Smith, who people had rumored said... Is all about himself and things like that. And I will say that this film is very centered around both Deadshot and Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn. But there's a lot of good stuff here from Will Smith as Deadshot. He is uh, an assassin who kills people for money. So he's not a good man by any stretch of the imagination. But that's his work. That to him is separate from what he does at home. And at home... He has an ex-wife and who I'm guessing does not approve of his day job as an assassin. And a daughter who doesn't seem to approve of his day job either. But he is doing his best to provide for her in the only way that he knows how. It seems to be the only way he knows how is to commit murder for hire. And eventually that got him caught and that left him in Belle Reef where he is in position to be recruited by Amanda Waller, who was played by Viola Davis. And let's talk a little bit about Viola Davis. This is the Amanda Waller I want to see. From the minute I've met Amanda Waller while reading the Legends miniseries in the late 80s, you know, I've always described her from what I've seen on the page. She was a 300-pound black woman with the personality to match. Well, Viola Davis is not 300 pounds, but she had Amanda Waller down pat. This woman was scary. She took no crap from anybody. And I've always said that Amanda Waller is the one character in the DC Universe that's not going to take any nonsense from Batman. And I really wanted to see a scene where she faced off with Batman over the creation of something like the Suicide Squad. But we didn't really get to see that. We did get to see her meet with Bruce Wayne in a mid credit scene, but... 
it wasn't the it wasn't the confrontational scene that I had hoped it would be. There was some confrontation, but it was a point where Amanda Waller was already down from the events that took place in the film. I don't think she was taken too far down, but the events of the film took her down a little bit, as we'll see. But Amanda Waller, like I said, she's a tough woman. She gives the Suicide Squad its orders. She is trying to do the right thing for her country, but she is diametrically opposite to what Batman is doing. She is trying to subvert while she is while Batman is trying to put a group together. That's pretty much Amanda Waller in a nutshell. I thought Viola Davis did a great job in this role. I was in the camp that I would have loved to have seen CCH Pounder play this role, and I've seen her play a similar role on The Shield, where she was a very, very tough woman, but Viola Davis filled out Amanda Waller's shoes very nicely, and I hope we see her around in further films in the DC Universe. It doesn't have to be limited to, to a Suicide Squad film. Amanda Waller is a character that can really appear anywhere within the DC Universe, and I hope that she does, as I really enjoyed Davis's performance in this film. So, we'll go on and talk a little bit about Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. A lot of people were upset about the look of Harley Quinn. Maybe it was some fan attachment to her original court jester costume. But like I said in the opening, I don't think you could really have Harley Quinn running around in this film in a court jester outfit. She'd probably walk around looking like the 1989 Batman costume that Michael Keaton wore. Just unable to move in the thing. But that doesn't mean the film ignored it. The costume does appear in... The scene in the on the airport runway where the squad is given its gear. And when the film is discussing Harley's origin, it does show her in the court jester suit in a decent-looking homage to the Batman Harley Quinn comic that was released. That was released in October of 1999. And you'll look at the screen, and it was Harley. I'm not going to mention the outfit any further. I'm just going to say it was... Really no worse than what she wore in the New 52 comics or what she appeared in several of the Batman Arkham Asylum video games. So, it is what it is. I'm not going to complain about it any further. I am going to look beyond the physical and talk about the character that I saw on the screen. And, you know what, when I looked up at that screen, I saw Harley Quinn. I saw the Arkham Asylum psychiatrist who fell in love with the Joker, who was probably used by the Joker and turned into the Joker's work of art. Her relationship with the Joker is creepy and abusive, and and the woman is crazy. There's no two ways about it. She was driven insane by the Joker, and she's probably more of a victim than anything else. But she is what she is. She's a villain. And an adventure with the Suicide Squad is not going to change that, as we saw toward the end of the film. So, that is going to bring us to the Joker, portrayed by Jared Leto. This was probably the most, other than Will Smith, the most high-profile and most publicized casting of the film. And a lot was made of Leto's method acting, uh, who he never broke character while on set. He sent his castmates strange gifts. Even Will Smith said that he had never actually met Jared Leto. He just knew the Joker. A couple of other things Leto did in his method acting was that he read literature on shamanism and he spoke with doctors and spent time with psychopaths in preparation for the role. So nobody's going to accuse Leto of not throwing himself all into the role. Now, obviously people might have had their issues with the way the Joker looked. 
the all the tattoos were a bit jarring, uh, just because we're not used to that kind of look from the Joker. And yeah, the teeth were a little off-putting at first, especially when you're looking at them up close. But you know what? I can kind of no prize the teeth away as a replacement. I'm sure Batman has knocked out his teeth on more than one occasion. So why he's got silver teeth instead of uh, some nice white dentures, I don't know. But it is what it is, and I am certainly not going to complain about it. Like I said, the look is what the look is. I'm more interested in what the Joker does on the screen, and he was scary, and he scared everybody around him. Leto had a little bit of a different laugh than other actors who have played the Joker. He doesn't have as much of the the loud laugh that we got from a, someone like Cesar Romero or the <laughs> kind of stuff that we got from Jack Nicholson. But he seemed to have that some of that quiet scariness. He was not as over the top of a performance as you would expect. I'm not going to say it was better or worse than any other version of the Joker we've seen, but it was different. So, sometimes different is good, sometimes it's not. I didn't have a problem with the way the Joker was portrayed in the film. The Joker's role in the film was to chase Harley Quinn. That was his only goal, and he did not care what got in his way or what he had to do to get her back. In his own way, he loves Harley Quinn, because she's not only his lover, as we call her, the Joker's girlfriend, but in a sick way, Harley is also the Joker's child, as she's kind of his creation, as we see in the film, as he is the one who pushes Harley, or Harleen Quinzel, remember, that she is the former Arkham Asylum psychiatrist. That's pretty much all I've got on the Joker. Like I said, he had ten short minutes of screen time, but he was present throughout the whole film. So let's go on to some of the other characters that we met in this film. Joel Kinnaman was Rick Flagg. He's the army guy, the special forces guy. He answers to Waller. He leads the squad in the field, which is officially Task Force X. They don't actually put Suicide Squad on paper. Probably a good thing. Kinnaman was kind of the third choice for the role of Flagg, as Tom Hardy was previously cast in the role, but forced to drop out because of scheduling conflicts with uh, Revenant. Then Air went to Jake Gyllenhaal, who turned the role down, and it eventually went to Kinnaman. I have no real complaints about Kinnaman's performance. I don't have a ton of good to say about Kinnaman's performance either. It was kind of just there. It was kind of neutral. He was also, like the villains, manipulated by Waller as he was in love with June Moon, also known as the Enchantress, who we'll get to in a few minutes. I'm unclear from memory how he got into his relationship with June, but whether Waller had anything to do with that or not, but she had something on him and... Well, that was her leverage on Flag to keep him from getting out of line. She couldn't put a bomb in his head, but she could control him in other ways. Now, here is a, a role and an actor that I had absolutely no faith in heading into this film. Jai Courtney, who played the role of Digger Harkness and Captain Boomerang. Captain Boomerang is what you'd expect him to be. He is a thief that utilizes deadly boomerangs. And I have never had much of a use for Captain Boomerang. I still don't. And, but you know what? I've never had much use for Jai Courtney either. And every film I've seen Jai Courtney in, be it, be it Terminator Genesis or that last abomination of a Die Hard movie, if anything else I've seen Jai Courtney in, he's reminded me of stale white bread. So the one thing nice about Jai Courtney in this role as Captain Boomerang is that, you know what? 
I never once thought of Jai Courtney. So, I guess he did his job, and he played, did a good job playing Captain Boomerang, who was obnoxious, beer-swilling, just a real dirtbag. And let's, and let's leave it at that. But he did have his moment in the film, as every character does, even if his moment is a little more understated than some of the other characters. Captain Boomerang, the character, has always been kind of a joke, both outside of the universe and inside the DC universe. As I'll never forget back when Identity Crisis was coming out back in the mid-2000s or early 2000s. I don't remember the exact date off the top of my head, but I remember this point where the heroes thought Captain Boomerang was responsible for all the murders, and Green Arrow was absolutely offended <laughs> that it was Captain Boomerang because Captain Boomerang was a joke. And he was a joke in this film, pretty much, but you know what? He was an entertaining joke. And he did have his one moment where he was useful, where he wasn't just grabbing his pink unicorn, which sounds far more perverted than it actually was in the film. Jay Hernandez played the role of Chato Santana and El Diablo. I think kind of El Diablo might have been one of my favorite characters. You know, he is a former L.A. gang member. He has the powers that allow him to summon flames. And... He was kind of in penance for the horrors he inflicted on those he loved, which is basically he wound up killing his girlfriend and his children, and he did not want to really stay in the fight. The rest of them were happy to get out there, wreak some havoc, and kill people, and, well, he didn't really want any of that. He was, was happy enough in jail, serving his life sentence, and repenting for past crimes, and... Eventually, he did have to act, and we'll talk about what he did later in the film in a more of a detailed analysis. Adewale Akinoye Agjube was Waylon Jones slash Killer Croc. He was pretty much Killer Croc. He suffered a skin condition, which caused him to develop his reptilian features. He had his signature moment in the film, too. Now we got Kara DeLevine as June Moore and the Enchantress. She was the villain of the piece. June Moon was an archaeologist who was possessed by the evil force that became... The Enchantress, so there was a little bit of double role going on. Dillavine played the role of both Moon, who was basically a, an archaeologist who tripped over a bad rock and was possessed by an ancient witch who was about 63 or so hundred years old. So you want to avoid those when you're trompsing around the, uh, the caves out in the world. But she was the villain. She wanted to purge the earth in order to punish mankind for imprisoning her. You know, the typical upset witch trying to get revenge, so she was going to destroy the world by shooting a blue beam in the sky. It was not the greatest plot ever written, but, you know, you give me some good character stuff that I'm going to enjoy, and I'll forgive you some plot deficiencies. How about that? And then we've got the last main member of the squad was Karen Fukuhara as Tatsu Yamashiro slash Katana. For those of you who have watched Arrow, you saw a great deal of Katana's story there. I know it's a multiverse. The two characters are not the same character. But pretty much everything you, we learned about Katana in Arrow, you can apply here. In this film, she was Rick Flagg's bodyguard, and she wields the mythical Soul Taker blade, which traps the souls of its victims. And she was there mourning her husband's death. Her husband was murdered by the sword, and he's in there, and she talks to him. She's not a criminal, but she's really not all there either. But I thought Fukuhara did good with what she had. I mean, it's an ensemble film. It's very hard to service all of the characters. So, you do the best with what you can. And a couple of other roles were Adam Beach as Christopher Weiss slash Slipknot. Ike Barinholtz played Griggs, who was a security officer at Belle Reve. 
and Scott Eastwood was C was GQ Edwards, which is basically a Navy SEAL. For all the secrecy and whatnot around Scott Eastwood, nobody knew who he was going to play in the film. It was kind of disappointing that uh, he really didn't play anybody significant, just some random character that we're probably never going to hear again. There were other surprises in the film. There were two Justice League cameos, a little bit of an extended cameo from Ben Affleck, who appeared in the film as both Batman and Bruce Wayne, and Ezra Miller showed up as The Flash at one point. So, And we saw a picture of Jason Momoa as Aquaman. With that being said, I am going to go straight into the synopsis for Suicide Squad, which was brought to you by Wikipedia. In the aftermath of Superman's death, as depicted in Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, intelligence operative Amanda Waller assembled a team of dangerous criminals. The deranged Harley Quinn, elite hitman Deadshot. What? Hey, Angelo. This is the exterminator you called for your rat problem. Accounts looking a little thin. No one gets paid until what needs to get done gets done. Nope, that's not the rules. No money, no honey. Whoa, here's your boy right now. With about 20 of his new best friends. I'm still seeing zeros over here, Angie. This is stop being cute and do your job. Oh, they're taking him out of the car now. In about 30 seconds, your window is going to close forever. Okay. Okay, okay, relax. There was an accounting error. We said it. Now double it. You got 10 seconds. We're not the kind of people you play with. Did you threaten me? This dude's going to get a sore throat from all the singing he's about to do. You son of a... Bless you doing business with you, Angie. Pyrokinetic ex-gangster El Diablo. Opportunistic Thief, Captain Boomerang, Monstrous Cannibal, Killer Croc, and Specialized Mercenary Slipknot at Belle Reve Penitentiary and places them under command of Colonel Rick Flagg to be used as disposable assets in high-risk missions for the U.S. government. Injection you got. It's a nanite explosive. It's the size of a rice grain, but it's powerful as a hand grenade. You disobey me, you die. You try to escape, you die. You otherwise irritate or vex me, and guess what? You die. I'm known to be quite vexing. I'm just forewarning you. Lady, shut up! This is the deal. You're going somewhere very bad to do something that'll get you killed. But until that happens, you're my problem. So was that like a, a pep talk? Yeah, those pep talk. Grab what you need for a fight. We're wheels up in 10. You might want to work on your team motivation thing. You heard of Phil Jackson? Yeah. He's like the gold standard, okay? Triangle, bitch. Study. One of Waller's intended recruits is Flagg's girlfriend, Dr. June Moon, an archaeologist who is possessed by a witch goddess known as Enchantress, after touching a cursed idol. Dr. Moon. Enchantress. Meet the Enchantress. Everything we know about her is in your briefing packs. 
She's walked this earth for a very long time and will likely be here when we're long gone. This meeting is, is now a magic show? Magic or not, this girl can do some pretty incredible things. Go get it, girl. How about a little something from the weapons ministry vault in Tehran? We've been chasing these plans for years. Uh, please don't touch me. Please don't touch me. Thank you. We'd like Dr. Moon back. Enchantress quickly turned on everyone, deciding to eradicate mankind for imprisoning her. She besieges Midway City with a horde of monsters, begins creating a weapon, and summons her brother to assist her. Waller then deploys the squad to extract a high-profile mark from Midway. Behold the voice of God. For those of you who don't know me officially, my name is Amanda Waller. There's an event in Midway City. I want you to enter the city, rescue HVT-1, and get them to safety. I'm sorry, uh... For those of us who don't speak good guy, what is HVT-1? The only person that matters in the city, the one person you can't kill. Complete the mission, you get time off your prison sentence. Fail the mission, you die. Anything happens to Colonel Flagg, I'll kill every single one of you. Remember, I'm watching. I see everything. There's your pep talk. So that's it? What, we some kind of... Suicide Squad. I'll notify you next again. Ahead of their departure, they are joined by Katana, who wields a mystic sword and acts as Flag's bodyguard. You're late. You all got the. This is Katana. She's got my back. She can cut all you in half with one sword stroke, just like mowing the lawn. I would advise not getting killed by her. Her sword traps the souls of its victims. Harley Quinn, nice to meet ya. Love your perfume. What is that? The scent of death? Horosuka. <laughs> Whoa, easy cowgirl. Ain't that kind of a mission. Have a seat. She seems nice. Harley's lover, the Joker, finds out about her predicament and tortures Griggs, one of Waller's men, into leading him to the facility where the nanobombs are made. He blackmails one of the scientists involved in the program into disabling Harley's bomb. On their approach, the helicopter is shot down, forcing them to proceed on foot to their target. On the way, Boomerang convinces Slipknot that the bombs are a ruse meant to keep them under control. Mind games. What's that? Oh, this bomb in the neck crap. That ain't real, mate. See, they're trying to trap us with our own minds, right? But you look around, we're free, bruh. How do you know this? Just trust me, I know, right? It's a corner. Now I'm gone. Because i got a life to live. Question is, are you coming? Slipknot attempts to escape and is killed, and while the team is attacked by Enchantress's minions. Boss, we got people up here. I'm on my way. Amanda, we have hostiles up ahead. Flag, get out of there. We're not here to fight them. We know that doesn't work. Copy that. I like these odds, mate. You just say the word. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, uh, hold that thought. 
they look like that. Stay cool. To hell are they? You cut and run, I'll blow your head off. Dean manages to escape to their final destination in a safe room, where they learn that their mark is Waller herself, who is attempting to cover up her involvement. The squad escorts Waller to the rooftop for extraction, but the arriving helicopter has been hijacked by the Joker and his men, who open fire on the squad while Harley climbs aboard. However, the helicopter is shot down by Waller's men, and Harley jumps out while the Joker seemingly perishes in the explosion, after which Harley rejoins the squad. Alerted to Waller's whereabouts, Enchantress's minions arrive to kidnap her. With Waller compromised, Flag relieves the squad of the mission, but chooses to continue. Realizing they have an opportunity to prove themselves, they soon rejoin him and locate Enchantress and Waller at a partially flooded subway station. A group of Navy SEALs led by Lieutenant G.Q. Edwards and Killer Croc go underwater to plant a bomb underneath Incubus, while the squad fights Enchantress and her forces. El Diablo embraces his abilities and manages to hold Incubus down as the bomb goes off underneath killing them both, as well as Edwards. The squad members battle Enchantress together, but are ultimately defeated. Enchantress offers to fulfill their deepest desires in exchange for their allegiance, and Harley feigns an interest in order to get close enough to cut out Enchantress's heart. Just after, Killer Croc throws explosives into the weapon as Deadshot shoots them, destroying the weapon. Flag takes Enchantress's heart and crushes it, killing Enchantress and freeing June. The squad members are then returned to Belle Reve, but with ten years alleviated from their sentences and special privileges. Shortly afterward, Joker, who survived the explosion, arrives with his men to rescue Harley. In a mid-credits scene, Waller meets with Bruce Wayne, who agrees to protect her from the backlash of Enchantress's rampage in exchange for access to the government's files on the expanding metahuman community. Why, Mr. Wayne? It's like to make friends. It's the difference between those who believe in friendship and believe in leverage. Good night. You look tired. Just stop working nights. You should shut it down. My friends and I will do it for you. So, at this point, I am going to take another break. I will play another promo. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to kind of ramble on about my thoughts on Suicide Squad. Hang around, folks. Carl, you have traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But... As awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus, 
punches reality, now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday only at twotruefreaks.com. Welcome back, folks, and in this segment, I am going to give my spoiler-filled review of Suicide Squad, and my overall thoughts were that, you know, like I said in the opening, I enjoyed the film, I had a good time with the movies earlier today when I saw it, and, you know, when I go to the theater with myself or any of the kids, you know, that's really all I'm looking to do, you know, I can sit there and look to pick apart this shot and that shot, but you know what, like I said, that's not my expertise, there are other reviewers that will do that. What I'm looking at is whether or not I enjoyed myself in the theater. You don't have to agree. You may not have enjoyed it. You know, that's your prerogative as well. But I can only speak for myself as to why I enjoyed the film. And the biggest problem for me is the weak villain. But it seemed like in the context of all these other characters that the film was kind of just giving us a villain as kind of a MacGuffin. They needed to chase something, so they decided to chase the Enchantress. This film was not greatly, was not designed to have a great villainous plot. It is not nearly as complicated as Batman v Superman was. And I'm not saying that to assume people didn't get Batman v Superman. I'm not planning to open that can of worms right now, but Batman v Superman had a lot of moving parts that this film doesn't have. This film is far more straightforward. It starts out far more straightforward than just about any film in the DC Universe, well, of the three so far that we've seen. I guess it can't get any more straightforward than the start of Man of Steel, which started with Lara giving birth. doesn't get much more straightforward than that, but basically this film kind of starts with Amanda Waller kind of giving birth to the Suicide Squad, or Task Force X, which there, which apparently had been spoken about before, according to some of the stuff we learned from the film. And one of the things I'm going to say about this film, and I mentioned this a little bit before, we saw that at the end of Batman v Superman that Superman's sacrifice and Superman's death was the impetus for Batman to start looking for the rest of the metahumans to form the Justice League, as we're going to see in next year's Justice League film. This film starts with Amanda Waller doing the exact same thing, except she's doing it for the government, and she's looking to do it with deniability, basically by using villains. But one thing I like as a Superman fan is, is all this talk with the supposed, with the receptions of both Man of Steel and BVS, that Superman is not important. Enough! With that, shut up! We've seen enough in now three films that Superman is important to this world. The first line we of dialogue we hear in this movie is talking about Superman. Superman is constantly referred to during the first act of this film as Amanda is putting together the squad or trying to lobby to get it reactivated. I mean, the first line we hear is her say, the world changed when Superman flew for the first time, and then the world changed again when he didn't. During that scene, you see there's a little bit of voiceover dialogue, and you see a shot of his funeral, talking about having buried us, just buried a soldier. So it's very shortly after the end of BBS. And there's a guy selling t-shirts with 
Superman Death Shield on one side and the words Remember on the back. And honestly, I wonder if they're selling those t-shirts. I'd like one. <coughs> so, if any of you know anything about that, be sure to let me know. Superman is very important to this world. And he's going to come back and be important to this world again. And if the rumors are true, they might even be making another solo Superman film down the line. We haven't heard anything other than the rumors that came through recently, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens with that. But as a Superman fan, I was very pleased that he was mentioned as often as he was in the film. Waller even mentioned that, you know, yes, they were glad that Superman happened to be on their side, and that he proved that. And they were concerned that the next Superman, not to say the next Superman is Superman, but the next Superman-type person to show up would be as benign as the Man of Steel was. So... Everything that happens in this film, to me, was a reaction to the fact that Superman is no longer in this world. When Superman is in the world, the Task Force X isn't necessary. When he's not, it becomes necessary. And he'll be part of the world again. And as you all know, when you create something to fill a void, and the originator comes back, and that void no longer needs to be filled, what you created in the interim is still there. So... The concept of Task Force X is going to be around once Superman comes back. So, let's just leave that there. Like I said, I really enjoyed seeing that Superman was so important to the development of this world. Now, the beginning of the film was probably a little jarring, you know, as a lot of it was expositional dialogue delivered very well by Viola Davis as Amanda Waller. Basically giving the... Dossiers on the most important members of the squad, and seemingly Deadshot, as we, we see Deadshot in the midst of a hit negotiating with his client on the phone trying to get the payments made before he fires the bullet. It shows Deadshot's skill, and it shows that Deadshot is in this for the money, and that he's not going to end somebody's life on a whim. He is going to do it because, well, that pays the bills, that puts food on his daughter's table or his ex-wife's table, so his daughter can eat. That shows the principles of Deadshot. And that's a Deadshot that I've seen in the comics, I've seen that in Arrow, so... As far as the Deadshot character, I thought Will Smith's portrayal was pretty accurate in the way he was written, so... Waller has mentioned that she slipped some information to Batman, so there is, early on, a reference that Waller has some kind of relationship with Batman. I don't know if she actually knows how to get a hold of him per se, or if she just sprinkled some breadcrumbs and put the information out there for Batman to see it. Either way, she found some way to get information to Batman to, that led to Deadshot's capture because she wanted Deadshot. She even manipulated Batman a little bit, which is not something you see every day. And I did enjoy the brief bits we saw of Batman in the film. We saw him capture Deadshot. We saw his not really wanting to rough up Deadshot in front of his daughter. And I really liked how the relationship with Deadshot and his daughter played out in the film as she actually stops Deadshot from killing Batman. Because she really doesn't want her father to be a killer, and who does? Who wants their parent to be a killer? She doesn't want him plugging the old bat. So the next dossier we go to is Harley Quinn. More Gotham City action. We see what happens when the Joker doesn't like people hitting on Harley. We see a little bit of Harley's craziness. We see Harley's backstory with the, at Arkham Asylum getting manipulated by the Joker. Then we get a little car chase that we've seen in trailers, and we see Harley get caught by Batman, and we see Batman give Harley some CPR after she drowns in a vehicle, and, well, Harley wanted a little bit more than CPR. We'll leave it at that. I'm not going to spoil everything. 
But if you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. And that was probably the closest we got to any Joker on Batman action. So that's pretty much that. And the one cameo that I kind of... I knew about this ahead of time. I knew that The Flash was going to appear in the film. And I'm really kicking myself to not think that it would have been in a scene where he's catching Captain Boomerang as Boomerang is primarily a Flash villain. So, Boomerang was one of the funnier things about the movie. Apparently, for some reason, he has a pink unicorn fetish. But it is what it is. That was pretty much all of the early dossiers that I remember off the top of my head. Like I said, we get a lot of early stuff about Amanda Waller putting together the the squad and recruiting and some negotiating. But really, the film kind of shines a little bit when the characters are kind of just set into motion. Any scene where Rick Flag had to interact with the squad was kind of hysterical because the man was really out of his element with these characters. And I think that's where some of the humor of the crazy kind of comes from. You know, he's a tough military man, and he is expecting things to go pretty much kind of the way he was expecting them to go with, you know, using tactics that he has honed in the military, you know, being very tough. And, well, that kind of stuff does not really work with crazy people and criminals. You know, Deadshot has a very strict moral code. Well, I don't know how moral it is, but he has a very strict code of honor. He is not going to kill women and children, and there is a scene where he is ordered to shoot Harley after she leaves the squad for the Joker, and he does not shoot and kill her. And I'm not one of these people that says, in order to be successful, the movie has to have jokes. I don't necessarily find humor in jokes. To me, the humor comes from interaction. Things that Harley Quinn does, or any of them really do, can be funny because of the way other characters react to it. It's almost similar to a way in which I hope Batman's humor works in Justice League, where Batman's not going to sit there making quips, but he's going to sit there and his reaction to somebody like Cyborg or The Flash or something like that is going to come off funny to us because it's going to make him uncomfortable and it's going to put him out of his element a little bit. And there's a lot of humor to be mined from certain people being uncomfortable and Rick Flagg spent most of this movie being uncomfortable. This was a film that had a lot of character. The movie focused on Deadshot's relationship with his daughter and Harley Quinn's relationship with the Joker. You know, the whole time. He may not, like I said, he may not always be on the screen, but he's texting her. He's telling her he's coming. And she's waiting. Harley wants to go back to the Joker. Harley is always looking to find her way to the Joker. She only goes back to Task Force X when she thinks the Joker is gone. And that's Harley Quinn. Harley Quinn needs the Joker. And maybe to a certain extent, the Joker needs Harley Quinn. And in modern comics, I haven't read a lot of the Harley Quinn solo title, but I've read her in Suicide Squad, and the Joker's kind of not around, so she's kind of thrown her lot in with, with them. But in this film, she's showing that when Joker is there to call for her, She'll always respond to the Joker. And that's a tragic relationship. And it's an accurate relationship to what we've seen of her in the the animated series and everything else she's appeared in since the character was created. And I was reassured before seeing the film that Paul Dini approved of the way Harley was portrayed. You look past the costume, you look past everything else, all, all the... The tattoos, the fishnets, all, all the bull, all the stuff that doesn't matter. The essence of what I've seen as Harley Quinn 
was there. And the essence for what the Suicide Squad is was there. If this version of the Suicide Squad, the concept created by John Ostrander, who had a pretty cool Easter egg in there of the John Ostrander building where they eventually do pick up Waller. If he recognized his creation on the screen, who am I to disagree with the man who created the concept? The same thing with Harley Quinn. If Paul Dini can look up there and say, yeah, that's my girl Harley, then yeah, I'm going to go with that. And he saw something, and I saw it too. You know, Like I said, I didn't see a strong plot, but I saw good character. And for me, good character is going to take you places that can make up for a weak plot. I make no bones about it. This film did have a weak plot, at least a weak villainous plot. Yeah, there was a slight twist in the middle where they discovered they were rescuing Waller from Midway City. And no, they got lied to and it wasn't a terrorist attack, but the character stuff was there. And there was a whole to-do about Slipknot that I saw on Facebook a few days ago. There was an article in on comicbook.com that said a dossier intro was shot for Slipknot and it was cut from the film. And I, you know what, I can see why. Slipknot appeared in the movie for like five minutes. Boomerang kind of convinced him to try to escape to test the bombs in the heads. And he tried to escape and his bomb, and the bomb exploded in his head and gone he was. Not every Star Trek red shirt needs a backstory. Just saying. It, if it helped the actor get into his role, fine. But you know what? The last time I had heard Slipknot's name even mentioned was during the aforementioned Identity Crisis story. And... I don't recall hearing about him before or since, so he's gone. He's not coming back, and I don't care. You know, you can't keep everything in the film, even though Zack Snyder did try to keep everything in Batman v Superman. You know, but I did like that all of the characters had their had their moments. Obviously, Harley and Deadshot had most of the moments, where most of Deadshot's moments seemed to have come in uh, negotiation with Waller, as he negotiated with Waller to, to shoot Harley and then still didn't do it. Harley had two moments. The first, when she had the choice to stay with the squad and join the Joker, and she chose the Joker. And then when she came back, she was the one who kind of made the choice to stand up to the Enchantress and do what had to be done, you know. The Enchantress showed just about everybody what they really wanted, and Deadshot wanted to kill Batman for arresting him, and Harley wanted a life with Mr. J. And... At some point, I guess she knew she wasn't going to get that, and she decided for, I guess, for the good of everybody to set up the fall of the Enchantress, which ended the film. You know, another character I want to talk to a little bit about is El Diablo, who I had mentioned was my, probably my favorite character in the film. You know, I thought he was pulled off very well. You know, he also had his signature moment. I don't think he was in the dossier at the beginning. I know we got his backstory kind of scattered throughout the film a little bit about how he wound up killing his girlfriend and children because he was angry and lost control of his flame powers, and he's always holding back because he doesn't want to lose control again. And, as is want to happen in these films, there comes a moment where he has to give up control, and he does. Diablo just twice. His first time when, after Deadshot yells at him a little bit in Will Smith fashion, and there's a second time where... Diablo knows he has to do what he has to do to take on Incubus, who is the brother of the Enchantress, and is he becomes this fire demon creature, and you know what? El Diablo pays with his life. Diablo gives his life to push Incubus into the spot where the bomb is, 
and he makes that ultimate sacrifice to save the world, you know. El Diablo is one of those guys who, yes, he was a criminal, yes, he was a bad man, but yes, he's in prison forever, but he's a man who is trying to repent for what he did. Not everybody who's in prison can say that. And by sacrificing his life to do his part to stop Enchantress, he's done that in a way. He can never take back what he did. They can never make that right. But he's gone away to make up for it. And there are stakes involved here. You send people into a war zone, people die. In life and in some movies. Even if the stakes on a world level didn't seem like much in this movie, there were stakes on a personal level. And people's lives ended here in Midway City, and the film doesn't really run away from that. It doesn't fully embrace it either, but it doesn't avoid that. There was a fight. People involved in that fight died, and it wasn't staged in an airport. And nobody inexplicably survived after falling from great height. Just so we can make a cheap joke later in the film's coda. But enough about that. I thought Diablo was handled very well in the film. He had his moment. Harley had her moments. Deadshot had his. Rick Flagg had his when he wound up destroying the Enchantress's heart. That was his moment. I mean, Harley, believe it or not, Harley Quinn saved everybody by cutting out Enchantress's heart with Katana's sword. Croc didn't speak a whole hell of a lot. I don't think he actually said a word until about halfway through the movie, and the only thing he said was, after Amanda Waller talked tough to him for a few minutes, was he said that, I like her. If that was all Croc said for the whole film, I would have been happy with it. But he had another good line at the end where he tells the other Navy SEALs he lives on the water of their tourists. I thought that line was pretty good. And the movie was predictable. I knew once they mentioned the flooded subway tunnel, well, that's going to be Croc. That's what he's going to do. And I knew Harley and Deadshot were going to be involved in the climax of the film because they were the stars that the film was built around. And then when it was all over, they pretty much put everybody back in the box, kind of like you would for a Suicide Squad film. I don't know if we're going to see the Suicide Squad in full again. We might. There is nothing on the DCEU schedule right now that indicates there's going to be a Suicide Squad 2, but there are elements of this film that can go on into other portions of the universe. There are some characters that probably would be limited to a Suicide Squad sequel if there were to be one. I don't think we would see Deadshot again anywhere other than a Suicide Squad film because he's put back into jail after the mission is over and Killer Croc can kind of be left where he needs to be left. We may not see him again. I don't really know what purpose he would serve in a future film. He's not even really a member you really think of when you think of the Suicide Squad. They can leave him there or send him back to whatever Batman movie is coming out. I don't think there's any reason to see Rick Flagg anywhere other than a Suicide Squad film. That's kind of really the only place he appears in the DC Universe. So, And with him, maybe wherever he went, Katana would go as well. So she'd probably be restricted to a Suicide Squad film. I don't see her joining up with the Justice League anytime soon. Boomerang could show up in a, in a future Flash movie. At the moment, we only know of the one, so... I'm not sure I'd want to see a Flash movie with Captain Boomerang, but we know that a Flash movie is coming out, so he could show up there. The one thing I do seem to like is that this movie kind of put all the toys away after it was done, so to speak. We don't have to see these characters again, at least most of them anyway, until the next time they want to try out the Suicide Squad. If they do try out the Suicide Squad again. As of this recording, the movie has made 
$1.6 million domestic and $466 million worldwide. Not a, not a bad sum after the first two weekends of release. And we'll see how long it runs. The film has been in theaters as of this recording for 10 days, so we'll see where this movie ends up at the end of its run. I'm sure it's going to end up short of Batman v Superman's $872 million worldwide cum, and it's probably not going to reach the $330 million domestic figure that Batman v Superman gathered, which was deemed a disappointment. Now, I don't know box office math really very well, so... I'm just going to go with the very basic and very rudimentary information that I know is... I've heard people say that you basically need to double the production budget and then they start making money. According to Box Office Mojo, if this number is correct, the production budget was $175 million. Double that to $350. The film is in the black by $116 million. If that kind of math holds, like I said, I don't know. So it could be a Suicide Squad sequel down the road. If not, there are other places for some of these characters to go, one of which would be Amanda Waller. While Amanda Waller was created when John Ostrander created the Suicide Squad, she is a character that has become very important to the DC Universe. She can appear just about anywhere and acting in any kind of government capacity. And as we saw at the end of the film, Harley Quinn was rescued from her cell by the Joker. So... She could appear anywhere as well. There has been talk since before Suicide Squad came out about a Harley Quinn movie. Personally, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I mean, yes, I'm a Harley Quinn fan. I enjoy the character, but she's still a villain. And I'm not sure if I want to see a movie based on a villain. I mean, yes, you can say we just got that with Suicide Squad. Yes, they are all villains, and they were working mainly in their own self-interest. But... You know, we saw a character like Deadshot who had a moral code. Harley is damaged. Harley is insane. Just because she's a female character, you know, to me, doesn't make her a role model. So I'm not entirely sure I'm comfortable seeing a Harley Quinn movie that would give young girls the idea that Harley Quinn is someone to be emulated. She's not. Harley Quinn is... she's really a victim. She's somebody who was preyed upon by a predator, the Joker. And yes, she might have thought she loved him when she was a psychiatrist at Arkham Asylum, but she really fell under his spell and the Joker took advantage of that to the point where she allowed him to drop him in those Vata chemicals at Ace Chemicals. And we saw in this film that she only did what she did to save the world because she thought she lost the Joker. She left, she abandoned the squad to go back to the Joker. To go back to that life of villainy that got her into Belle Reve in the first place. So, I'm not sure I am very big on seeing Harley Quinn in her own movie. There are plenty of other female characters in the DC universe that you can use that would be a positive role model to young girls. That I don't think you need to tap Harley Quinn for that just because she's popular. Now, where I would like to see Harley go is I would love to see her and the Joker go into a Batman movie. Because they're, they're the Joker and Harley. They're going to go back to Gotham. That's what they know. And who's waiting in Gotham other than the big bad bat? So, my hope is that 
they t we take the escape of Harley and the Joker from Suicide Squad, and maybe they show up first in that Batman movie that we know is coming in 2018 or 2019. I don't know off the top of my head without looking at the slate. Probably 19. You know, the, the slate looks very crowded right now with Wonder Woman and Justice League coming out next year. And then the, the upcoming slate of DC films is very crowded so far. The Flash, Aquaman, and an untitled film scheduled for 2018. That could be a Batman film. We don't know that. And 2019 has Shazam, supposedly another Justice League movie, and another untitled film, which could possibly be a Suicide Squad sequel, or there was rumored that a few days ago that the studio was fast-tracking a standalone Superman movie to follow up Man of Steel. So the slate is very crowded for a Harley Quinn movie with everything else that's scheduled to come out. The bottom line is we don't know. If there's no Suicide Squad or Harley Quinn started now, I wouldn't be surprised that we don't if we don't see... Harley and the Joker in the next Batman film. And I won't be surprised if we see Amanda Waller in the next Justice League film. As we saw that end credit scene where we saw her and Bruce Wayne talking in Amanda's favorite restaurant. Where she was giving him the dossier that they had on or at least Barry Allen and Arthur Curry, the Flash and Aquaman. So apparently Amanda knows there's some kind of connection between Batman and Bruce Wayne, and whether she knows that Bruce is Batman, I don't know, but that mid credit scene showed Amanda Waller in an uncomfortable place. Normally, Amanda is large and in charge, and you can tell there that she's kind of beaten from the blowback from the Enchantress incident. Bruce probably used that to get this information out of her in a promise to protect her from whatever is coming to her. But I really wanted us to see a scene between Batman and Waller, and I kind of got it, but it wasn't what I was looking for. I like to see Amanda Waller standing up to Batman. I've always said she's the one character in this universe that doesn't take any crap from the big bad bat. And in this particular scene, Bruce kind of had one over on her, and he had that great line at the end right before he left the restaurant that if she didn't shut it down, meaning Task Force X, he and his friends would. I don't know if he and his friends meant him and his future Justice League, or maybe Bruce Wayne has some influence in the government that we don't know about. I'm sure he does. He's a very wealthy man. That's about all I've got on Suicide Squad. There was nothing earth-shattering about this movie, let's just say that. I was entertained, wasn't blown away by it, it was decent. This film, boys and girls, was never going to save, quote-unquote, the DC Extended Universe. And I'm still in the camp that doesn't believe the universe needs saving. Maybe it needs adjustment. And I have no idea why people thought this was going to be the film that the, the adjustment was going to be made on. Let's face reality, folks. Batman v Superman was released in March. This movie was released in August. Five months is not enough time to adjust from one movie to the next. DC film stuff and Jeff Johns' involvement wasn't announced until May. Three months before this movie came out. This film was not much of an adjustment from Batman v Superman. If you want to see an adjustment, we're going to see them next year with Wonder Woman and with Justice League. We were never going to see it here. 
And movies are just... They move too slowly as far as production goes in order to adjust things like that. And there was an attempt at adjustment. Maybe this movie suffered for it. Maybe it didn't. There's no way to know. The only people who know were the people who were involved. I was not involved in this movie. I don't think I have much else to say on this film. If you have anything to say on it, you can send me an email at manascreen at gmail.com. You can join the conversation over in the Facebook group. You can find that by searching for the Mana Screen Podcast. You can find the show on Twitter at Mana Screencast. Or you can leave me an iTunes review and that'll help others find the show as well. Next time, I'm going to take a little bit of a break from format. I am going to talk about a trip my family and I took to Walt Disney World. It has nothing to do with Superman. It has nothing to do with anything DC Comics related. It's going to be my Man of Screen Extra Indulgence show. Let's leave it at that. So, until then, folks, I'll see you around. Thanks for listening. Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music is in sound clips used in the making of the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All trademarks are copyright their original copyright holders. The Man of Screen Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network and can be found at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. The homepage for the show is manofscreen.podomatic.com and you can email the show at manofscreen at gmail.com Thanks for listening.